Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, and we review the medical literature and we review case studies. Today's show topic is our brain function, memory, and Alzheimer's disease affected by chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And what role does mold toxicity play? Our guest today is a Dr. Sharon Hausman-Cohen, MD. She is board certified in family medicine and integrative medicine. She's the director of Resilient Health in Austin, Texas. And I first came across Dr. Hausman-Cohen kind of by accident. And at first I was overwhelmed and then I was very thankful. But the story goes that I was at a clinician training for Alzheimer's disease and, and the Bredesen protocol for treating Alzheimer's disease and Dr. Hausman Cohen gave a lecture on SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and, and as the first time I'd ever really heard of it in that compacted form, and she did it in about an hour, which could be a course that's more than the whole Alzheimer's course as far as I'm concerned. And so it made my head spin and I had to I was forced to go start learning something that I was kind of dragging my feet learning because supposedly ten to twenty percent of uh, Alzheimer's patients may have a biotoxin illness or mold sensitivity and respond to treatment. So, Dr. Hausman Cohen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to, to talk with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, let's just jump in there. So, your educational background, um, can you give me a little bit about that and how you got to be practicing integrative and functional medicine? Well, I actually started out going to medical school in order to become a researcher. I was going to do a PhD in medicine, but shortly after being there, I discovered that I didn't want to spend my life just studying one protein or one pathway, and this was at Harvard at the Division of Medical Sciences, but again in the PhD program. And so I went to medical school, but I always remained an avid researcher. I was always interested in understanding why things happened, what could be used to intervene, and over the years, that led me towards integrative medicine and functional medicine as a lot of functional medicine and integrative medicine principles look at treating the underlying disease. So instead of just treating fatigue, looking at what's causing the fatigue. Is it coming from mitochondria? Is it coming from a detox pathway? Is it coming from deficiencies? And then even back when I was in medical school, I was interested in different systems of medicines and different ways of looking at things because I had been an exchange student to Japan. So even way back then in the late 80s, I actually organized what was called the first alternative medicine lecture series there with people like Deepak Chopra and Bernie Siegel. So it's been an interest of mine for a long time. So tell me, when did all of a sudden... As you're cruising along, did you become exposed to this mold or biotoxin illness? And were there any aha moments or teachers that affected you? So I had not heard, like you, of chronic inflammatory response syndrome until about five or six years ago. And it was actually a patient who happened to be the wife of a colleague of mine who came to me and asked me if I would learn about this because she and her family had been so affected by it that they were traveling to Arizona to get care and really wanted to know if I would be willing to take on their care here in Austin. And so she actually uh, gave me a lot of references, resources, and put me in touch with Dr. Mary Ackerley, who is very well known in this field in Arizona. So um, Mary Ackerley was a, a big mentor for me. And then I also did spend some time on the phone and uh, learning Dr. Shoemaker's protocol. So define what chronic inflammatory response syndrome is and what that means to you. So 
if you look up in the coding book that doctors and nurse practitioners and everyone use for codes, there is no code for CIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome. It's a nonspecific code for immune response not otherwise described. And so it's really a term that has been coined to describe people who have this tremendous immune response to a wide variety of things, but mainly mold toxins, which we call mycotoxins, different toxins from certain fish, and from different organisms like Lyme disease. And what it is, and I'm going to talk about it with regards to mold, and it's very similar with the other situations, is people have different genetic ability to present foreign invaders to their immune system. And so people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome, it appears that part of the underlying mechanism is that they can't properly present mold to their immune system so their immune system doesn't fight off the mold. And the mold itself is not actually what enters the blood and wreaks havoc with the immune system or the endocrine system. It's actually that the mold or the Lyme disease gives off these toxins. So if you imagine the mold to be kind of like little soldiers, they can only go as far as the different linings of the body, the nasal lining, the gut, the lungs, but they can't actually enter. But they can send these little mycotoxins that are very, very small, only a few microns, into the bloodstream and they can get into the nervous system. And if you can't properly recognize the mold so it doesn't stop emitting the toxins and then you can't clear these toxins, that's when I think you get a problem. So not everybody that has a genetic potential from what's called the HLA type, which is a lot listed in the literature as one of the main factors, gets CIRS. It is more than just one gene. It seems to be genes both involved in the immune pathway, but also in various detox pathways and quite a few other pathways probably as well. So let me clarify that. So I've been kind of um, saying a mantra that 25% of people uh, may have a genetic predisposition not to be able to clear the mold toxin. And I was assuming that that was just with the particular HLA testing that we do, you discover that. Is that not correct? Is there other pathways that don't clear the toxins? I believe there are. And I think that most of us that have spent a lot of time looking at the genomics of people that have these diseases believe that that there are more than one, um, that you need more than one hit on the system. So if you think about, from your experience as a practitioner, 20, 25% of people may have the HLA type, but these people that have full-blown CRS, and I know you call it SIRS, either one's fine, they are in the minority. They're less than 1% of the population. They're quite ill. When a normal person, sorry for those of you who have it, I don't mean to call you not normal, but when the average person goes into a moldy building, even if they're mold sensitive, they might get a headache, they might feel badly for a half an hour, an hour, even a day, but these people can feel poorly for years and not necessarily from the very first exposure, but after they've had a little bit of exposure and it's really hard to get them well. And so what, what I am kind of finding from my work in looking into people's genomics as well as speaking with other colleagues in the field, there are multiple pathways involved with one of the most important being some of the glutathione detox pathways. So glutathione is the master detox pathway that goes through the urine. 
but it's also really, really important in the detoxification of fatty tissues, which of course the nervous system and the brain is one of them. And so if you have the mycotoxins released and they get lodged in your nervous system and you then have the double hit of you can't clear them from your immune standpoint, you're letting them get by the initial guards, but then you also can't clear them with the cleanup system, that becomes a problem. I think that people also sometimes have problems with other pathways that affect mitochondrial energy and inflammation as well, but I think that one of the other most important pathways other than HLA type is glutathione activity. There's also another factor of why that pathway is so important in that mycotoxins turn off the production of glutathione. It's, they affect something called the NERF2 pathway. And so if you have a toxin that already kind of turns off that pathway and you weren't very good at turning it on to start with, that causes problems. So it's not that the HLA is not important. I just think that there's a lot more to it or we would have 25% of our population getting really sick from mold and we don't see that. Wow, and that, that question opens a can of worms for my questions, or that answer. Um, so, <laughs> darn it, Sorry. I, was, I was hoping to go down step by step by step, but that's okay. So, Dr. Shoemaker, who's one of the leaders, has a particular set of, there are about 10 different tests that, that he does in his um, armamentarium to start off with. And so, what you're saying is, you could do those tests, and let's say 80% of them are out of balance, but... Uh-huh. You would also do, add to that then, what is your go-to glutathione test and mitochondrial test? When Because you, you mentioned those two components. Okay. So first of all, you can assume that the glutathione pathways need to be addressed just because we know that mycotoxins, those ochratoxins and the actual toxins released by the molds, turn off the glutathione pathway. So even if you have a perfect glutathione pathway, you're going to want to turn it back on and augment it and help it along if you have symptoms of CIRS. And so we can, if you want, talk about how I do that. But in terms of looking at those pathways, that is a little bit more difficult. I don't use a specific blood test. I actually use data from 23andMe more than I do blood work for looking at those pathways. And you can look at glutathione pathways. The main software that I use to use it to look at these pathways is through software that a naturopath developed, dnasupplementation.com, or his his name is Bob Miller, and he has also a company, Tree of Life Ministries, is his company in Pennsylvania. It's only a software that physicians can use, but Bob can give different different patients lists of doctors who are familiar with using his software and learning how to interpret the glutathione pathways. And you can also self, kind of do self-hack or things like that. But I have to say that those can take a long time to try to figure out because there's a lot of different pathways involved in the synthesis of glutathione and the NERF2 pathway. It's much easier to work with somebody who can use the software from Bob Miller. So how about this? So let's say you're a simple-minded uh, practitioner <laughs> and you gave IV glutathione. You don't need... <laughs> do you use IV glutathione? Oh, okay. Yes or no? I or, do not. You don't? I do because? not, actually. Because? So I don't use it because it's a very, it's expensive and it's a very short snippet in time. I'm not saying that it wouldn't mm-hmm. help, but I want people to have glutathione production long-term, day in, day out, in a cost-effective way. So the number one way I address that is using a product called Avmacol, 
AVMACOL, which is a sulforaphane-producing product. Um, sulforaphane is made from broccoli sprouts extract that are three days old. It has to be activated in the gut. The reason it's not just plain sulforaphane is it's mixed with the enzyme maracinase to activate it in the gut. And that has been shown to turn back on that NERF2 pathway and allow glutathione production on its own. So I'll use that and then make sure people have enough cysteine, such as N-acetylcysteine, so that they can synthesize their own. And it's relatively inexpensive. It's about $30 or less, depending on where you get it, for a bottle of 60. And by taking that twice a day, I have found that I'm able to really help people with the brain fog pretty quickly and that they tolerate it really, really well. So I often start that even before the cholestyramine. And if you want, we can talk about what's well, the difference of the detox pathways. Well, so let me just get clear then. So it's the AV, is it AVMACOL or AVMACOL? A-V-M-A-C-O-L. Okay. And that's the one it's you said you took, right, you take twice a day? Or was that yes, the, one NA, twice a day. And then the NAC, is it five, 600 milligram, two or three times a day? How do you? Well, usually 600 milligrams twice a day. Sometimes I'll go as high as four times a day, but it really depends on the patient and what they tolerate and what other things I want to use and what their other symptoms are and how many pills fit in their pillbox. So do you do, this is going to get to the supplementation part, it's two parts. One, do you supplement with a glutathione, a lipophilic glutathione, um, and or do you do urinary mycotoxins and give the glutathione to help it spill? So I'm answering two questions at the same time. <laughs> so I have okay. So I have used Real Time Labs as the main lab that does the urinary mycotoxins. I have used them. Um, patients that have CIRS are already facing a fairly large amount of out-of-pocket expenses. And so I find the NeuroQuant, and again, we can talk about that, which is a test done on an MRI to look for patterns of inflammation, a little bit more useful when you're just kind of saying, how much money do I have to spend on, on doing different things? I do use intranasal glutathione and find that very helpful um, especially when people are having brain symptoms at the beginning. And then I'll sometimes use that along with the Avmacol. And then as they clear up and they're feeling better, they often don't need the intranasal. And the reason that we use things intranasally is it allows for about 30 to 40 times higher delivery to the brain. Um, now, if somebody doesn't want to take an intranasal nose spray, uh, type medicine, they just don't like nose sprays or for whatever reason they don't want to get a compounded medicine. I also have used the oral liposomal and I do think that those things help. And again, that's something I'll use at the beginning. Then I'll kind of look at their genetics sometimes and say, hmm, how bad is their own ability to synthesize glutathione? And we, we also experiment with people. They'll be on something, they'll go off it as they're feeling better, if they're like, mm, no, I really missed it, I felt much better on it, they may use it long term. Okay. Well, then I got that. So how about then, and by the way, Medicare has been paying for that mycotoxin test. So if it was paid for, let me ask you this, if it didn't cost the patient money, do you, the, the question is, is it a, valid, a, a valuable test? <laughs> I would say yes and no, which is not a really good answer. That's and right. the reason I would say yes and no, when I did a test series of about five patients, and most of my patients are younger, a lot of the patients with CIRS are not Medicare age, so many of them were paying out of pocket, I had some comeback positive. I had others that I felt 100% sure had CIRS 
that did not come back positive, but at that time I was not yet using the Avmacol. And so if they didn't have glutathione on board or Avmacol on board, then they may not be able to clear into their urine because remember the cholestyramine and the other pathways are more clearing through the gut or through the sweat. So I think it's a reasonable thing to to do at the beginning of the diagnosis. I would probably do it with glutathione on board or at least the Avmacol on board so you can maximize your collection through the urine. Well, let me ask this then. We always use it with glutathione because of that very reason. And so let me put it this way. If you have positive mycotoxins from that test, whether it's a glutathione challenge or not, do you think that that's a reasonable pointer in the direction, so to speak, that the person's got that problem? I do think it's reasonable as long as they're sick. You wouldn't use this as a screening test. So you wouldn't just say, oh, you have this HLA type if somebody's not having symptoms. So for somebody who has cognitive symptoms only but does not have any joint pains, does not have any visual changes, does not have any stomach issues, does not have any low blood pressure, nothing else you know, going on in the review of systems, I wouldn't call it CIRS even if they had, I was able to evoke mycotoxins from their urine, I probably, I probably wouldn't go down that pathway okay. to even look for it. How, since you've gone to the shoemaker training, and people can read it on survivingmold.com, the testing, how strict do you do that, the, the testing protocol, of those 10 or 12 tests, or do you have some four or five go-to ones on there that you like to use? And let me just clarify, I don't want to misrepresent myself. I did take the shoemaker training. I purposely never handed in my test um, as I did not um, really want to be on the referral list. I know that sounds funny, but I, I, I knew I, I didn't have the bandwidth in my practice to, to do that, and, so I, and I didn't have the time to finish the test. It's a pretty long test, so I licked it over, and so just don't want to misrepresent myself. Um, but I use parts of his protocol. I do not use it explicitly because I think that he has given us a wonderful start. He made tremendous headway in the research, but I also, because I am innately a researcher, and have found such success with also addressing the glutathione issues and looking at from a genomic standpoint, um, that's one reason I haven't been so explicit, but also because, again, some of the tests are covered better than others. The C4A, which was tremendously helpful when we could get it, is very difficult for us to get here in Austin at this point. And so I sometimes I still use TGF-beta, Sometimes initially to help the patient feel comfortable with the diagnosis, I'll use things like MMP9, but I don't use necessarily, I'll use VIP, I'll use AM cortisol. So I'll use a lot of the tests, but I don't necessarily continue to retest once I've made a diagnosis because I'm really going for more clinical improvement and outcomes. And again, some of these tests are not covered. Some are. It depends on someone's insurance. Okay. So the C4A test, I, I was using that as a, a, my economic screen, so to speak. Um, so would you say that is more, that if it's elevated, it's, it's an indicator of mold and or is it other biotoxins? And does that mean they're currently being, quote, exposed? I don't think we can answer that because I think there's a lot of different genetic predispositions. There's a lot of different illnesses that can affect the complement activation pathways. So I, I think it can be helpful. I don't think that any one test alone can 
make you make the diagnosis. So TGF-beta is another one that goes way up, but in people who have that kind of hypermobile, borderline Ehlers-Danlos type of collagen, you know, the ones that could like do tricks with their thumbs on the playground at school and make their wrists bend backwards, those kind of people tend to have higher TGF-beta levels to start with. And it's probably because they have variants in um, certain pathways. One that's being looked at is one that's something called the Tenaskin pathway. So there's so many different variables that I think that this is kind of one of those ideas of do they have the symptoms, do they have the exposure. When you test their neuroquant, I find that to be particularly useful because that is a very different pattern of swelling than other people who come to you with cognitive impairment. Okay, so let's 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 go to that. But I I just want one little sideline. You, how do you stimulate sure. your mi- the mitochondria? Do you have your generic little approach to the mitochondria, like you do the, um, mm-hmm. the glutathione? Tell us that. So if you absolutely, so if you do not have access to uh, doing mitochondrial testing in terms of looking at all the variants, there are two products out there that are quite good. One is Kpax, which is by Integrative Therapeutics, and the other one is Mitocore. They were both developed by the same person, John Kaiser, who's up at UCSF now, and they're variants on the same theme. One of them does not have the CoQ10 in it. The Mitocore, you have to take your CoQ10 separately, and it has a little bit less of the NAC, the N-acetylcysteine in it, but it's capsules, so that makes it a little easier to swallow. The K-Packs are a little bit bigger pills. They, they have a couple of differences in their formulations. One is by orthomolecular, one's by integrative therapeutics, but those are my two favorite overall mitochondrial supplements because basically that product was developed during the HIV AIDS era because some of those AIDS medications turned off the mitochondria and caused a lot of mitochondrial side effects. So if somebody is tired and especially if they have any neuropathic symptoms, numbness, tingling, I always say let's get the mitochondria going and those are my my two favorite products. We're talking to Dr. Sharon Hausman-Cohen, an integrative medicine physician and expert in uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And we're going to connect it here in a minute if I can get my act together to uh, cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. And so that's where I actually started going down this road because I said, well, I better learn about this so I can help patients with cognitive decline. When did you become aware that SIRS could really affect cognitive decline and then make the the small jump that it may be part of an Alzheimer's disease reversal treatment? Well, in terms of the jump to part of the Alzheimer's or cognitive decline or dementia protocols, I had been taking care of SIRS patients for a couple of years when I met Dr. Bredesen at an integrative medicine conference, and then I approached him and, and said, you know, so glad to hear you talking about this at a conference because we have been treating it, and by him doing the research from the other end it really helps all of us further the field. So I think that I didn't make the, I didn't know about the Bredesen protocol until a few years ago because that was the first time he had presented it publicly. And what really helped me is being able to then take patients that were more classic Alzheimer's, compare the protocol that he had developed along with how I treated my CIRS patients. And I think I've gotten better outcomes on both fronts by knowing both protocols. 
and the NeuroQuant that we're talking about is a really great way, I think easier than labs at distinguishing the two along with the history. So does almost everybody do a NeuroQuant test when they have cognitive decline in their SERS patient? That's where you want them to spend their money? I'm not sure if somebody's cognitive decline is due to genetic risk factors like APOE4 versus due to mold and environmental exposures, the first thing I'm going to do is look at their genetics and see are they in APOE4, which is found in only about 20% of the population, but about 80% of individuals who have cognitive decline before age 80. And so if they're not in APOE4 and they're having other symptoms, kind of what we call a positive review of symptoms, especially if they're having low blood pressure, joint pains, I'm going to say, you know, I'm concerned this could have an environmental component and get the NeuroQuant because the NeuroQuant was a test actually developed to identify Alzheimer's in the brain in that it looks at hippocampal volume and the hippocampus is the memory part of the brain and is one most affected by Alzheimer's. And in an Alzheimer's patient, the hippocampus shrinks and that's kind of the predominant feature A lot of parts of the brain shrink, but particularly the hippocampus and the ventricles get bigger. In in a patient who has SIRS, you get brain swelling from the inflammation. So you will see a little shrinkage of one part of the brain called the caudate, but in general, you get swelling of the brain. And so by comparing the two, you can have a very different picture, and there are criteria, and if you have You have to have more than four of these 12 points in order to meet the criteria for it to be a positive test from a standpoint of a positive neuroquant for mold. But um, most of the CIRS patients will have a six or an eight as a typical score, and the Alzheimer's patients will generally have less than a three. And then a standard population of people who have no cognitive symptoms will also have that score of less than three. So I've been exposed to the neuroquantin. I've, I've struggled getting, um, how can I say, proper education on it and how to, to read them and such. So do you have it uploaded right to, do you, how do you get it mechanically uploaded and you read the neuroquantin? The number two is how did, did you get trained in these protocols or systems? I think a lot of it, to be honest, we we help each other out. Um, Again, Mary Ackerley and another physician in Florida kindly took Dr. Shoemaker's parameters and put them into an Excel spreadsheet, and I will be happy to send that to you. Um, And that is how I used how I what I used to interpret it, because the NeuroQuant data comes to you in a a raw format, and you would have to either go back to Dr. Shoemaker's original studies and map it out, or you just put it into your Excel spreadsheet, and it does it for you. So uh, it's available in the published literature, but I, um, I, it's easy to put it into a spreadsheet and then be able to use it on multiple patients. Okay, let's keep going. So that's how you, a lot of times when you're – now, can't somebody have both Alzheimer's and SIRS? Absolutely, and I do have one patient where that is the case. And so what that looks like is they have swelling in many parts of the brain, but they have – a very shrunken down hippocampus, mm-hmm. or at least a much smaller hippocampus than you would expect a CRS. Okay. So let's talk about, do you do the Marcon's testing, you treat the sinuses, is that an important component or a lesser component in your approach? I do do that. I think we have to kind of know why are we doing it and 
one question that sometimes you ask is, do we know why we're doing it? But I, I do do it with the main reason, if you have a lot of biofilm lining the nose, the question is, will all these nasal medications be well absorbed? And in the Shoemaker Protocol, not only do many people use intranasal glutathione, but one of the endpoint drugs is using nasal VIP and vasoactive intestinal peptide. If you, again, aren't going to get good absorption of your nasal medications, then that's going to affect the protocol. So kind of getting that Marcon's cleared out is helpful from that standpoint. There's also some suggestion that having the bacterial overgrowth in the nose affects the immune system and that you'll see that in terms of their MSH, their melanocyte stimulating hormone levels, will be quite low. And MSH is involved in the immune system but also sleep and people like sleeping. So sometimes there's a, by being able to fix the Marcon's, you may be able to help with other things. I do it, I'm again not one of these people that constantly retests because some of the things, when we, what Marcons really are, are coagulase negative staph. And if you think about that, that is what we as physicians call staph epidermidis, and that's a normal bacteria on the skin. It's not an invasive kind of staph. So my goal is not necessarily to get it down to zero. So I often will do it at baseline. I will treat for a while. Sometimes I'll retest, sometimes I won't, but I, I think it, it's helpful. I don't know that any one step is the most important. In some ways, I actually feel the most thing I focus on, of course, is getting rid of the toxins, and that's a mixture of using the Avmacol and the cholestyramine okay, and so, diet. So let's say, um, all right, well, let's go over those three. So you're, you believe that someone is exposed to the mold, and hopefully you've got them out of your house or they've remediated their house, Correct. Or do you start treating right. right away? This is a hard. This to me is the hardest part. One of the hardest parts is: Do you? What, what do you do with the home, and when do you start treating? Well, it, it's people get very attached to their homes. It's a pretty expensive asset, and it takes a little while. Uh, I tend to use Micometrics as the lab for testing the home, not just one of the commercial tests where they come in and do air quality. You won't get enough information back. You need to have it be a DNA-based PCR test done on lots of dust, and you collect the dust on basically a Swiffer cloth. While, that's, while you're waiting for that, if you suspect that someone has the symptoms, of course you want to start to detox them. In the Shoemaker Protocol, they start with the high-fat, low-starch diet and cholestyramine. Sometimes when people are very flared up, that is a little harder to tolerate. And so I often will start with the Avmacol and then I will go towards adding the cholestyramine after they've had a week or two, maybe even three on the Avmacol to start to pull some of the toxins out. The reason for the high-fat diet is cholestyramine is not absorbable. It is only working in the gut. So it can only remove mycotoxins that are dumped into the gut. The way that toxins get into our gut is through our bile and our fat metabolism. And so if you don't have enough fats in your diet, one, you're going to have more brain inflammation because sugar is inflammatory and particularly omega-3s like fish oil are anti-inflammatory. But two, if you don't have enough fat in your diet, you're not going to pull out as much toxin through the colon. And when I have a CIRS person, I want to pull it out through the urine, through the colon. Sometimes we'll use sweat. You've got to be really careful because most of my patients uh, have very low blood pressures, and so I don't really tend to use the sweating pathway very much, like sauna. Well, then we're, we're opening up one 
small can of worms <laughs> every time I listen. I know. Uh, Everything up is one can and then another. I'm so, so sorry, Kurt. No, no, no. It's all right. How's your time? Can you go a little longer? Or you I'm run? fine. All right. I'm fine. All right. So when you say adding fat to the diet, are we talking about um, unsaturated good fats? Are we talking about saturated, saturated fat? Are we talking about coconut oil fat? And are, are you on a keto, are you moving them to a mildly ketotic diet? So, that's a good question. I do not put someone on a mildly ketotic diet unless they have evidence of it being more of what I would call the classic Alzheimer's. If they're an ApoE4 with cognitive impairment, then I am going to most likely move them to a mildly ketotic diet because that's really where it's been shown to have benefit. If they are a classic CIRS person and I, you know, they're 35, 40 years old, and it's really a CIRS picture, not an Alzheimer's picture, I am going to get the diet to be a higher fat diet. And, and I agree that you have to be careful that not all fats are equal, but I may not try to go for a mildly ketotic. And I, I probably would not, I do not go for a mildly ketotic. They've got so many things on their plate that that's not, that's not a, a priority of mine. I just want them to get enough fat and of the good fats that they can get the inflammation down. So you were asking, like, what kind of fat do I try to have people use in their diet? I am a strong believer that you are much better off using the omega-3s and the unsaturated fat compared to saturated fat. We know from lots of different studies, you can go back and look at forks over knives or read the China study. You can look on and let the literature online the evidence is, in my opinion, pretty clear that saturated fat is not good from a cardiac standpoint. Saturated fat tends to stimulate the liver to make more cholesterol. Now, sometimes it doesn't matter for our CIRS patients because coconut oil is also high in saturated fat, but it's short-chain fatty acids and there's some some good benefits sometimes to the brain for that, but sometimes it does matter. So if someone's an ApoE4 APOE4 is not just a risk factor for cognitive impairment, but it's also a risk factor for cardiac issues. So I really try to get those patients to use a high-fat diet that is low in saturated fat. And we have them work with our dietitian who is very skilled at lots of recipes of, you know, bread from almond meal and cashew sauces and all kinds of things, helping them to get to that. If they're just a CIRS patient and I don't think any of my CRS patients would say that just belongs in a sentence with CRS, but if they have, <laughs> because it's not fun, but if the goal is just to get them to be able to clear their toxins better and to decrease inflammation, then if they want to have a little bit more animal fat in their diet, I'm not going to worry about it. And if they want to use some coconut oil, I'm not going to worry about it. But I still encourage them to use lots of fish oil, and, and eating fish is a great way of getting fish oil if you eat the, what I call the smash fish, the salmon, the mackerel, anchovies, sardines, herring. Um, they're lower mercury fish and high in omega-3s. And then using more of the plant-based sources of fat, just because from a health standpoint, I think that makes more sense in general. You're going to have much lower inflammation with those, and our goal of the fats is to lower the inflammation. Now, another piece of that is don't have high glycemic index foods. Dr. Shoemaker refers to it as a low amylose diet. Most people refer to it as a low glycemic index diet. And the bottom line is we all know that sugar is inflammatory. 
vegetables are healthy <laughs> and, and that if you're much better off having a low glycemic index piece of fruit like a peach or some cherries than you are having, or berries, than you are having a piece of cake. And then not even to go by the gluten issues right now. So we don't have time for that. So, <laughs> I know. so, so you're. So let's just stay with the detox, and I'm going to get into a couple of hormone things, questions, and then we'll clear this up. So, Great. So your detox approach is obviously to get people out of the exposure, but in the meantime, you've already stimulated the mitochondria, you've stimulated um, the uh, glutathione pathways, and so you start off with the Avmacol. Is that generally correct? I, yes. Yes, and I start off with Avmacol. I start off with omega-3s. So most people really can't get enough omega-3s to kind of settle their brain down and settle inflammation down just from fish. Um, so I also will give them high-dose omega-3s, and I will also then, after that, start to, again, address mitochondria, but also other things they can do to decrease inflammation. And a lot of the same things that we say we use to decrease inflammation like EGCG, which is from green tea extract, quercetin, those are known to decrease inflammatory cytokines, but they also help bring down the TGF beta. So we're addressing some of the underlying issues because TGF beta is going up because of inflammation. TGF beta is a factor that's involved in repair of tissue that is a down regulator of inflammation. So when it's going up, it's because the person's inflamed. And your definition of high dose omega-3 fatty acids is? So it's Ballpark. like one point it's 1.2 grams, uh, like 2.4 grams of I think it's the EPA component funny I know which brand you know we'll grab it from the shelf but it's, I think it's 2.4 grams of EPA and then the DHA follows along so you don't get try and get a higher amount of DHA for the brain you're going on the inflammation part or you know. well you're doing both and it ends up being about six grams of omega-3s a day it's, on some brands when you're looking at the breakdown anywhere from you know six to nine grams would be great not everyone wants to take that much so sometimes you know some people will use three or four but more is better at the beginning for if they're having a lot of brain symptoms it helps to settle it down and do you do you generally just shotgun the omega-3s or do you ever follow up with an omega check or omega-3 index or essential fatty acid profile you just don't do that i sometimes do that i again if somebody has coverage where I can do something like a Boston Heart or I can do some of those tests, I will. It's If they're doing well and I'm getting them better, I'm probably going to do less testing in terms of the follow-up than if I'm having a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And you know, and hor- there's there's other factors that we again haven't talked about getting their hormones back. Right. In order so that's the next that's the next question. So how important in well, I guess there's two questions. In a neurologic patient that's exposed to mold or the SIRS patient, how important is bioidentical hormone evaluation and replacement to you? Well, hormones can be really helpful both in the regular, uh, the more classic Alzheimer's APOE4 type, as well as in a SIRS patient. And part of that is because you will actually see that the whole HPA, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, becomes off in CRS because of the mycotoxins kind of wreaking havoc with that HPA axis. So you'll have a 30-year-old woman that has an unmeasurable testosterone. 
um, sometimes they'll have very high estrogen and low testosterone, but I think you want to look at their hormones and then go, what's going on? Are both of them low? Is the estrogen high and the testosterone low? And then address what you're going to do about that because testosterone is involved in anxiety and you'll see a lot of people will feel very anxious. Testosterone is involved in sleep. It's involved in cognition. Estrogen is involved in those things, um, both in APOE4 patients and just young women in general don't like having their estrogens either too high or too low. So I do address it. It's not necessarily the first thing I address because Again, people tend to be a little bit overwhelmed, but I have had people that the really the step that got them from okay to really feeling back to normal or good was getting their testosterone level back to normal. And sometimes I can do that with creams and things, but sometimes I will have to do bioidentical in the form of pellets, but you don't really want to start giving hormones right at the beginning because if you give a lot of testosterone at the beginning before you've gotten rid of some of this inflammation, they're just going to convert it to estrogen and they're just going to have even higher estrogen dominance. So often I will try to get a few other things under control and that's more one of the later steps if their own brain has not recovered and they're still having low testosterone, and then I will give them iodine with the testosterone so that, unless they have Hashimoto's, so that they can keep that testosterone from converting to estrogen. And your favorite way of evaluating the hypothalamic pituitary axis, is it a four-point cortisol? Is it an ACTH? Is it a what? What do you do? So a good starting test is you're drawing blood work on them anyway, is to do an AM cortisol and an AM ACTH. If their AM cortisol is either really high or really low and their ACTH doesn't match, and again, you can find this on Surviving Mold, Shoemaker's website, he talks about the two extremes and the different patterns, then you have hypothalamic pituitary dysregulation because if your AM cortisol is very low, then your ACTH should be high trying to stimulate it. If it's not, then that's a sign of dysregulation. And if your cortisol is very high, then your ACTH should be low. And depending on where you catch someone, not just from CIRS, but anywhere in the spectrum of stressful illness, you will have adrenal insufficiency presenting all the way to adrenal, you know, adrenal fatigue all the way to adrenal insufficiency can present anywhere on that spectrum. And that's addressed with a whole other set of supplements and trying to get rid of the stress and the inflammation. Um, And Dr. Teitelbaum, who's in Hawaii, that's a great person to go visit, Um, Dr. Teitelbaum writes some good information about how the adrenal access gets off in stress. If you look at, I believe, if you just look up Teitelbaum and chronic chronic fatigue, he has a lot of information on that. Do you assess for toxic metals in your somewhere along this chain of assessment? And if so, how do you do it? So, um, yes, I sometimes assess for toxic metals. I actually have had a few patients this year that give me a history of, oh, yes, I used to love playing with mercury. Um, and so that when they were kids, they would, like, you know, use it as if it was a, was a toy and push it back and forth to each other. Um, so if I have mercury exposures or, again, I feel like someone is not doing well, then I will do a quick silver test and look for that. Avmacol, again, sulforaphane, has studies showing that it can help to pull out mercury. There's a lot of things that you're already going to be doing that will help with 
pushing those detox pathways. So it's not necessarily that I would do a quick silver on everyone. Urine mercury screens are covered pretty regularly, but they're just not as effective. So sometimes I'll do that, and then if that's positive, I'll do further testing. It just depends. There's Again, I try to be a little bit cost-sensitive as much as you can as an integrative or functional medicine doctor and say we can always do more testing later. So I don't have one uniform way of testing everyone. Is intravenous nutrients, um, whether it be a Myers-type cocktail or phosphatidylcholine or glutathione or standard chelation, are any of those in your armamentarium or are you just having good results without that? I have some people who want to try that and I refer them to someone else in town to get that. But most people, if they do it, it's just at the beginning because we really haven't found that to be necessary for chronic management. Excellent. So, But there are some people who at the beginning, they feel you know, they're so exhausted and I do think that it can help some people who are feeling really poorly to have a, a little more of an energy boost and push the detoxification a little faster. And so I work with another, another group in town since I don't do that. Well, I could go on for days, but I think this is, this is enough head-spinning stuff for some people. Do you have any added thoughts you'd like to add to the, our discussion today? I think that the biggest, the, the biggest thing I would want to tell somebody with CIRS or any chronic illness with fatigue, fibromyalgia, neuropathic symptoms that don't make sense, brain symptoms that are coming on, is that make sure you don't look at just treating the symptoms but make sure you look for the underlying cause. And I think that what we're learning is there's not any one cause for most of these difficult-to-treat illnesses. And so you have to start to look at the innate pathways. You have to start to look at what is someone's genetics. And if you can't access their genetics, and that's going to, again, continue to get easier, um, then you have to be able to say, okay, what kinds of symptoms? Fatigue symptoms are often mitochondrial. If things like CIRS, think of those detox pathways and look at what we know about how you can address the underlying pathways and make them stronger because there's something in your genetics that made you more susceptible to this environmental illness but not Everybody gets sick and stays sick. We have gotten many, many, many people well, and some, you know, many of the times people will have relapses if they get re-exposed, but if you can learn what it is about you that makes you more susceptible to this and how to fix it once, then you can also shore yourself up so that if you have exposures, you don't get sick. You know how to treat yourself immediately, what to go up on, and so look for the underlying the underlying condition, figure out what it is about you that that is going on, and also be optimistic because really I don't know of any patients that have really stayed what I call CIRS cripples. There are people that it takes us a year to get them well, but and there are people who we don't get 100% better, but I think that working with a physician that's experienced in this field, you can get better. And that's, that's very important so you can go on and live your life. Well, Dr. Hausman, that was great. I, um, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time. It was a very you know, uh, intense hour in the sense of there's so much for people. But that's how we learn. And, and I think the reason I do these things is you know, I try to share good information with patients and, and health professionals. But I, I learn. I'm a student here. So it's, it's, um, it's good for me to, to pick away. Anyway, thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon. 
Thank you for having me again. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. It'll be on a podcast at stayinghealthytoday.com. I'll do a little YouTube summary of it. And as we normally do, we have written material and links underneath to Dr. Hausman Cohen's clinic and also to, to my clinic. And we'll talk to you soon and have a great day.